A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we need you more than we need food. Give us spiritual ears to hear it and help us to taste and see that you are good as we inwardly digest the very word of God. Amen. Winston Churchill is one of the most memorable and influential parliamentarians in modern history. He was the Prime Minister who took Great Britain through World War II. In 1954, he turned 80 years old. As a birthday gift, the Houses of Parliament commissioned a portrait painting to be undertaken by Graham Sutherland, a famous artist at the time. Sutherland sought for accuracy over flattery, as he wanted to capture the real Churchill as he was, not merely in the way that he wished to be portrayed. When it was unveiled at a ceremony, Churchill absolutely detested it. In his mind, he saw a harsh, unflattering rendition of an old brute, angry flesh, a tyrant and his walking stick, a broken, sagging, pitiful creature. This portrait was a subject of controversy and was dramatized in an episode of the Netflix series the Crown. While probably a fictitious reimagining of the quarrel between Churchill and Sutherland, the artist tries to defend his work with the following exchange. Age is cruel. If you see decay, it's because there is decay. If you see frailty, it is because there is frailty. I cannot be blamed for what is, and I will not remove or disguise what I see. If you are engaged in a fight with anything, it is not with me. It is with your own blindness. Many of us won't have the opportunity to have the Houses of Parliament commission a portrait of us, but all of us have a book that can, the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If the Bible were to paint a portrait of your heart today, what would it look like? I am certain all of us feel inadequate when it comes to such a portrait. But the good news is that Jesus does not leave us in the dark as to how he would want us to look like. We have the master artist to guide us with the brushstrokes of love and grace. Last week, Pastor Anthony introduced us to the kingdom of God and the sovereign, our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we shall explore who its citizens are, 
the disciples of Jesus Christ. Everyone who lives in a particular kingdom lives by its laws and upholds its values. What are these kingdom values? Today, Jesus is inviting us to see a portrait of a kingdom disciple. Let us first establish the background to this text. Luke is doing something interesting. The whole of the sixth chapter is devoted to painting portraits. First, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and secondly, of the disciples. Luke describes who Jesus is through a series of events in the earlier part of the chapter, establishing him as Lord and Master. And here, from verses 17 onwards, we see Jesus the preacher. The whole sermon spans from verses 20 to 49 and establishes the kingdom values that Jesus wants the disciples to have in relation to daily life. In our time together, from verses 20 to 26, we shall learn the kingdom values regarding lifestyle, namely wealth, comfort, power, and approval. Let us consider how the text is laid out before us. Jesus addresses these aspects through four blessings and woes. Following good Hebrew poetic style, each of the blessings has an exact opposite idea with its corresponding woe. When we read each blessing, we should read its counterpart woe together to gain a perspective on what Jesus is saying. Before we go any further, I need to talk about Jesus' word choice of blessing and interpreting what he means. Jesus is not saying that there is blessedness because of poverty, hunger, and sorrow. He is saying that there is blessedness despite poverty, hunger, and sorrow. A disciple can be blessed even though he may experience these dire circumstances. This interpretational nuance will be important as we consider the questions that arise from trying to understand Jesus. Let's dive into the first blessing and woe, which is the kingdom value regarding wealth. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Is Jesus commanding that the disciples be poor? Is Jesus condemning those whose bank account balance is beyond a certain amount? If he was, every single one of us here is in trouble. All of us are above the international poverty line. Remember the interpretational nuance. There is blessedness even though one may experience poverty. The bigger question to ask is, what is truly important in life? Jesus teaches further on in Luke 12:15, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life versus things. That's the contrast. Can you have life apart from things? Jesus is teaching that we can. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? When a person faces financial difficulties, that person has two options, to trust in the Lord or to trust himself. Some of you listening to this have been affected by company restructuring and layoffs due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of you are graduating into a job market that is not hiring. Jesus wants you to know that you are not alone in this time. He wants you to know that he will be with you through this crisis and bids you to trust in him. 
I am privileged to know someone who exemplifies this kind of complete trust in God for finances. All his professional life, John was in hotel business and loved every second of it. He was living his dream. But a pandemic put an end to that dream, and with one phone call from his boss and a text message later, John was retrenched. Not being well-to-do, he needed a job quickly to pay the bills. God did not leave him in his hour of need. Determined to provide for his family, God directed John to find a three-month contract job as a career driver for a logistics company. It was nowhere near his previous pay, but it is during this time that John learned the ins and outs of a logistics company, which gave him perspective on user experience, or UX for short. Just recently, with much prayer and direction, John applied for a position where his UX experience sealed the deal in getting him hired. While not his dream job of being in his beloved hotel, John testifies that God had heard his prayers to help him find a way to earn a living. Now, while it's not a sin to be wealthy and well-off, Jesus does warn that we are forgetful when we are full. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. One question that arises, how much money is too much money? Jesus is teaching us that when money takes away our trust in God as the provider, it has become an idol. If your trust is in money, being greedy and stingy, if it's all about the accumulation and success, you have made money the center of your identity and not Jesus. To this, Jesus says, woe to you. On the other side of life, you will not be able to take any of it to heaven. Let's carry on to the second blessing and woe, which is the kingdom value regarding comfort. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Is Jesus commanding the disciples to be in a constant state of physical hunger? Is he condemning eating at restaurants or ordering takeaway? If he was, all of us, especially in Singapore, are in trouble. We love our buffets and hunting for the best chakwetel, don't we? What does being filled with food represent for Jesus' audience? To them, it is representative of comfort and security, an idea that is so foreign to us Singaporeans because we have such easy and ready access to food. The closest that I've ever come to feeling like this was during my national service days. The first field camp during basic military training was physically trying, but it was especially so because we had to live on combat rations. Imagine a salty, mushy goop. Imagine eating this for lunch and dinner every single day. Sounds depressing, doesn't it? For my field camp, I remember the commanding officer being kind to us. and He ordered cookhouse food for one dinner. Actual food, proper rice, vegetables and chicken meat. I can attest, in those field camp conditions, plain white rice can taste incredible. It brought about a level of comfort that I did not know was possible. In Jesus' day, there were segments of rich people who lived in a continuous state of overindulgence and adultery of the stomach. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel 16.49 records for us that this was the sin of your sister Sodom, 
she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. In the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, the devil observes that the gluttonous are characterized by putting their wants first, no matter how troublesome that they may be to others. So health-conscious foodies beware. The problem of gluttony is not too much food, but too much attention to food. Jesus is teaching us that there is a danger of eating in a way that dulls us from the spiritual and distracts us from God. If your whole life is consumed with consumption, if you're not going to God for comfort and security and instead going to the refrigerator, woe to you. You are worshipping your food and not worshipping with your food. Let's carry on to the third blessing in woe, which is the kingdom value regarding power. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Is Jesus commanding a joyless existence for the disciples? Is it a sin to make jokes? If it is, I will be in deep trouble because I enjoy stand-up comedy and Leslie Nielsen movies. What is this weeping and laughter that Jesus refers to? And what did Jesus' audience understand by it? The historian Josephus paints a grim picture of the time of Jesus. There was gratuitous violence, horrific torture, and gruesome abuse of one man against another. Death by crucifixion as capital punishment was performed in full and plain view of the public, as we will see with Jesus' death on the cross. We take for granted how civil our society is right now, and how limited it is for one man to exercise power over another, to get away with gross injustice. Your lot in life determined whether you wept or laughed. Those who were at the wrong end of the stick wept for their sorry circumstances, and those who held that stick laughed, cackling with devilish glee over the power they wielded. For those who listened to Jesus' sermon here, this was the grim reality of their lives. They were woefully insignificant. Oskar Schindler was an ethnic German Catholic who was a skilled business owner. His story is made famous by the Steven Spielberg film Schindler's List. In World War II, when Germany invaded and occupied Poland, Schindler moved there to take advantage of the German occupation program to Aryanize Jewish-owned and Polish-owned businesses. He bought and converted a factory to establish the German enamelware factory Oskar Schindler, also known as Emalia. While at Emalia, Schindler disagreed with the Holocaust and began to subvert the German program. He intervened repeatedly by using bribes and personal diplomacy to ensure that the SS did not deport Jewish workers who resided in the nearby ghetto. They ended up being employed at Amalia. At its peak strength in 1944, Amalia employed at least 1,000 Jewish forced laborers. In order to claim these workers were essential to the war effort, he added a bogus armaments manufacturing division. Schindler did not act here without risk or cost. His protection of his Jewish workers led SS and police authorities to suspect him of corruption and giving unauthorized aid to Jews. He was arrested three times, but he could never be charged in court. In Schindler's story, we see what happens when power is wielded counterculturally and at personal risk. He protected the ones suffering from oppression and did not profit off their backs. He could have utilized the Jewish workforce as slave labor as other businesses were doing. He did not. 
His pro-Jewish schemes could have been exposed, yet he persevered to save as many as he could. To these people who wept, Jesus foretold of a time where there will be a reversal of fortunes. To those in the kingdom of God, the king is not just a distant sovereign, but a loving father. Indeed, as the song we sang last week goes, Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. And to those who laughed from a depraved heart, Jesus forewarned the time when all their evil deeds will be called to account. They won't get away. If your whole life is consumed with attaining status and success at the expense of those beneath you, if you find pleasure in abusing your authority over your subordinates and direct reports, woe to you. God sees all and knows all. Let's carry on to the fourth blessing and woe, which is the kingdom value regarding approval. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We need to lock this into context. Notice that Jesus pronounces the blessing on account of the Son of Man. This is a hatred, exclusion, revulsion, and spurning that comes from being a kingdom disciple. This is putting your reputation as a follower of Jesus at the forefront and center of your dealings in daily life. This boils down to whose approval you seek, God or man. Paul wrote in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know what imagery Paul is drawing on when he wrote this? I want you to imagine with me that you are part of a group of construction workers at a building site 2,000 years ago. You are secretly a disciple of Jesus because it's illegal to be a Christian. You're going about your business and then suddenly you hear the beating of drums. You turn to see a contingent of Roman soldiers marching upon your work site. They are carrying an altar meant to worship Caesar. They stop, set the altar down, and the commander bellows, pay tribute to Caesar. One of your co-workers, who is not a disciple, goes up to the altar. Without batting an eyelid, with no hesitation, he takes a bit of salt, throws it into the altar, and says, Caesar is Lord. Effectively a statement of worship. Next up is a fellow believer. You recognize him from the secret gatherings to worship Jesus. He trembles as he walks up to the altar. With knees shaking and with tears streaming down his face, he utters the four words that will seal his fate. Jesus Christ is Lord. With no hesitation, the soldiers plunge their spears into the fellow believer where he stands. As they drag his body away, the commander turns to you. Pay tribute to Caesar. What will you say? We must be thankful that in this day and age, we do not suffer the same horrific levels of violence that was inflicted on our forefathers. The peace and freedom we enjoy now is built on the ground soaked in the blood of martyrs. While many of us won't get to be martyrs, there is the everlasting struggle between doing things that please God and doing things that please man. And if we were honest, it is so much easier to get the approval of man. 
It is so much easier to go with the flow and to indulge in the same practices as everyone else. But being a kingdom disciple means making a conscious choice to refuse bribes or creative accounting, even if it hurts the bottom line. It means making a tough stand on issues where the Christian response evokes ridicule and scorn. It means knowing that whatever we have done to honor Jesus with our words and deeds, he is right there with us when we pay the price. I know of a student who took a course where take-home examinations were a common mode of assessment. One of the greatest temptations with take-home exams is that because there is no invigilation, it is possible to get away with covert group discussions. This student struggled with the choice. She could confer with her friends and discuss the questions of the take-home exam, or she could honour God with integrity by not participating in these group discussions. She made the choice to honour God and refused to be a part of the group discussions. Her friends were very displeased. Surely if more people took part in this, the faster and more complete the answers would be to the questions. This choice cost her some good standing with her friends. It also resulted in lower grades. For one of the exams, she attained a C, but I believe she can now hold her head high with a C instead of hiding the circumstances if she had gotten a better grade. If your whole life is spent preserving your reputation at the expense of your Christian testimony, if you consider being popular as better than being right in the eyes of the Lord, woe to you. This is as much popularity and approval you will get on this side of life. In conclusion, Jesus paints for us an honest portrait of what a kingdom disciple looks like with four kingdom values regarding wealth, comfort, power, and approval. When Jesus blesses the poor, the hungry, the sorrowful, and the ridicule, he isn't saying that we should all aspire to these things. He is saying that God is present with us even when the world has abandoned us, that God loves us even when everyone else hates us. As kingdom disciples, then, we find blessing in seeking God, being hungry for God, loving those whom God loves, no matter what. Jesus' sermon was preparing the disciples for what they were going to face in the fallen world. And Jesus promised them that if they endure these physical conditions, if they persevered under trial, they will be uplifted and encouraged and even laugh with joy for how real Christ will be to them and how closely he will walk with them in this life and the life to come. And for us now, as we paint a portrait of our hearts with these brushstrokes laced with the love of Jesus, guided by kingdom values, may our portrait, day by day, look more and more like our King, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for letting us see the portrait you want us to paint for our lives. We have failed on occasion and let the darkness of our hearts stain the painting. We ask for a fresh portion of your grace to revive us and to help us persevere in living the way you want us to, covering over those blemishes, so that one day our portrait may look like yours. Guide us through the bad times and remind us in the good times. This we ask in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.